reading the work of Guy Standing and Carl Weiderquist and, and all the way back to uh, Thomas Paine to understand the real roots of, of UBI, which is, is not basic income. It's a social dividend. It's, it's everyone getting a share of something that they, that they should be owning. And, and that got me really excited because I can see how uh, uh, what I'm starting to call common wealth dividends mm -hmm. can work with a guaranteed minimum income together. Where, where as Martin Luther King, uh, who was for a guaranteed minimum income, he encouraged his followers that we need to do more than just give money to people who need it. We should question the economic system that creates need in the first place. And, and to me, uh, I've started to think about this concept of, of, of creating common wealth, literally wealth we own in common, like, like, like sovereign wealth funds, like they have in Norway and Alaska, where people feel that they, they own the oil and they're sharing the dividends. So, so I'm starting to think that there's maybe actually two movements here that, that need to, to happen separately and not be confused with each other. One is the anti-poverty movement that's for an income guarantee. And the other one is a movement that I'm calling uh, Commonwealth Dividends to create common wealth that can actually, is how we could get to Star Trek The Next Generation as an economic system. Welcome to Yang Speaks, the Andrew Yang of Canada, my good friend, humanist, visionary, co-founder of UBI Works, Floyd Marinescu. How are you, Floyd? I'm great. It's so great to be here with you. It's such a pleasure. And uh, I really, yeah, it's, it's awesome. You've done so much work and you've been a big inspiration for me, Andrew. Well, thank you, Floyd. You inspired me too. You and I met back when I was running for president. Uh, and you were one of the folks that got behind the campaign early on. You ran a conference and you actually had me address the conference of techies in San Francisco, uh, which was a delight and I'm sure generated some support. You personally donated to the, the uh, campaign in the ways that you could. You uh, corralled support. And meanwhile, you were actually taking matters into your own hands north of the border where you said, you know what, they should have universal... Uh, basic income, we should have universal basic income in Canada. <laughs> and, and so, yeah. um, so you and I have been friends for years. Uh, first, how the heck did you find out about universal basic income? Because it predated me. <laughs> yeah, I remember um, uh, Elon Musk, I think, first said the word and like, what's that? And uh, I was busy running my software developer education company for the last 15 years. And when I heard about it, I'm like, oh my God, I mean, we can have we can have a capitalism and have no poverty. We can have a system that works for everyone. It's so simple. And I thought about the impact it would have had on my family growing up where money was a huge source of tension, often even violence. And like, it would have made a huge, huge difference. So I'm like, when, as soon as I heard this idea and I started looking into it, I just, it captivated my imagination. I spent a couple of years just learning about it like a hobby. And uh, yeah. And then when uh, you were, um, I think I was doing my, running my software developer conference, QCon in uh, New York in June 18, 2018. And I heard you were speaking and like, I have to go see this guy. And I kind of, you know, wiggled my way into your campaign headquarters and got to know you guys better. And that was awesome. <laughs> yeah, so that was 2018. You and I have been friends for a few years. When did you first hear Elon Musk talk about it? Oh, I must have been 2016, I think. Yeah. Or maybe it wasn't him. I think it was him. But I just kept reading about it and, uh, and trying to bring like, yeah, understanding like what are the economics around it and trying to figure out like what, well, why don't we already have it? And uh, I, yeah, so in Canada, it, I, it was amazing because we were, uh, we had the most world leading, most important basic income trial ever in like 
dozens of years happening in Ontario, which is my home province or, or state for those in America. And, uh, and it suddenly got canceled in, uh, I believe it was 2019 in the summer. And I was so mad that, uh, no, that was 2018 also, sorry, 2018, uh, July. I just started a sabbatical from work. First time in my whole life, I was going to not work for a few months. I was like looking forward to relax and suddenly got canceled. And I was so mad that I just like, I got to do something. So I corralled a um, hundred CEOs, me and a friend, like went through a Rolodex of every business owner we, we knew to sign a letter to ask the premier of the province to not cancel the pilot. So that was kind of the beginning of my activation as an activist. And uh, yeah, so that was kind of where it started. So you referenced growing up in Canada and struggling with money or your family struggles with money. Can you talk a little bit about your background? Yeah, well, kind of typical immigrants, uh, you know, came here with nothing from a former communist country. Uh, father's pretty uh, right wing, like saw like how bad, you know, the, the totalitarianism can get. Came here, tried to make life for himself. And, um, you know, but growing up, you know, we all had uh, a lot of the tensions from back home, like m money was scarce. Um, and uh, often was a cause of a lot of tension and, and, and anger. Growing up around that, it was just really, really difficult for everyone. And uh, uh, in, in in my life, also, I mean, if I had if if we had had a basic income at the time, it would have been very different. I think things would have been much better uh, between my parents. Would have been much better for everyone. And um, e even I might have made a different career choice. Maybe I would not have gone into computer science. Maybe I would have gone to something else. Like uh, money really motivates decisions. And at the end of the day, it comes down to long term income security and and the world that we can have if everyone has long-term income security the, the better plans they can make the more freedom they can have to to do what's best for them so yeah. you grew up in canada and you went to school in canada and studied computer science is that right how did you go about starting your business yeah i went to uh, university of waterloo for computer science um honestly again mainly because of money like my probably, probably first career choice would have been psychology uh, third might have been massage therapist, <laughs> but uh, I, uh, I went to computer science because at Waterloo because they had a co-op program and I knew I could I could uh, make money quicker and uh, not have to rely on my on my parents, and uh, which I ended up getting a co-op internship in uh, Silicon Valley in '97, uh, and was out and about networking, trying to make the most of being there, and uh, just met a guy who hired me to build a news website for software engineers. Uh, and uh, as a student, and I did, and I was like running that like a business within his business. And uh, that turned out to be quite a success um, for the Java programmer community. Uh, I was sort of a mini celebrity. I was like 22 years old, keynoting around the world, talking about trends in Java. No one thought I was that young because I was writing all the news on this website. This is before blogs existed, kind of like the first blog uh, for tech. And uh, yeah, and then um, a few years later, I didn't like the new owners. And it was, they're just all about dollars and cents. They weren't about the community, didn't really understand the audience. So I quit and started the competition to my original site and uh, that's infoq.com now. And uh, we went international from day one. We had, we had uh, translations in China. We had in, in Portuguese and the multiple languages. Then we started doing events in New York, San Francisco, London, like uh, uh, Beijing, Shanghai, Sao Paulo. So it was all over the world doing these, these tech conferences uh, for software engineers and, and running this news website. So I have a media background. And uh, that was uh, how I got started. Uh, it sounds like in 2018, you gathered together these 100 business leaders uh, and they said, please continue this basic income trial. Um, and and uh, that kicked off your political activism in Canada. Is that right? And what has developed since then? Because I know you've been very busy. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting because um, people keep telling me that I'm doing p politics, but I, I think of myself as not doing politics, as, uh, as building a movement, as uh, I, I, I kind of think in terms of marketing terms. Uh, I never really thought of 
politics my whole life much. I liked, I was kind of an amateur economist. That was interesting to me, but, uh, um, so I like to think of what we do. So after that, I, I self-funded, uh, UBI works, uh, for the first couple of years, uh, which is a nonprofit that promotes basic income in Canada. We, we recently started asking for donations. I wanted to make sure like any entrepreneur that we can do a good job before asking for money. Like, you know, you don't go to the investors. That, that is not products. what most entrepreneurs do. Uh, that's what good entrepreneurs like you do. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I wanted to make sure we had good products, a good team, you know, investors invest in good in winning teams, not, not in just ideas. <laughs> so, so you can donate to UBI works right now, whoever's listening. Um, and uh, so I think of UBI Works as like a marketing agency uh, for an idea. And, and I focus on Canada because there's a lot of people in the U.S. like yourself. Uh, Canada doesn't really have anyone that's thinking about it from a technology entrepreneurial background with, a, with marketing skills to make this happen. So uh, now, two years later, I've been focused on that with most of my time and resources. And uh, we have almost four full-time people. Uh, we've, we've become the largest um, movement builder in the country. We have our email list is almost 60,000 names at this time, 30,000 Facebook followers. Uh, we do all kinds of things that a, that a marketing agency would do, you know, so the four P's of marketing, product, placement, promotion. So, for example, we want basic income discussed as an economic recovery measure. So we worked with the Canadian Centre of Economics Analysis to produce a, res a report that showed that basic income would create 600,000 jobs and add $80 billion to GDP which is as much as Canada's pre-COVID um, pre tourism and hospitality industries combined. This is an independent report. And then we use our network to promote the heck out of this thing. Like every MP in the country knew about it, like at the local level. Um, we, we were hammering this idea everywhere because as you know, politicians are accountable for economic growth. So we must link basic income to being good for the economy. And one of the things that we did. So overall, we, we see everything um, from the lens of how do we de-risk basic income for a political party to run on. Uh, that's our core strategy. We think basic income does require an election mandate because it isn't cheap. And uh, so we need to de-risk support. So we're building a, a voter base from the bottom up that's active and engaged. There's like thousands of likes every day in our Facebook. We're petitions all the time. And soon we're gonna be organizing marches uh, starting in September where there might be an election in the country to really put it on the map. And I wanna do marches twice a year where every March the goal is to be double the size of the previous one, and we'll keep doing it and doing it until the, the pressure is overwhelming and the government, uh, the parties will choose to run on it because they'll believe that they can win. So that, that, that is our overall mission is uh, make basic income an election issue. So if you have friends in Canada and you're listening to this and they don't know about UBI Works and out of this mailing list, let them know. Point them to Floyd uh, because <laughs> I don't know about the rest of you, but this sounds magical. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors. 
of sleep medicine is a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Uh, one of the rules of thumb I have is that Canada is approximately 10% the size of the United States of America. So it's very possible in my mind to have a, a rapid impact there um, more easily than might be the case in the United States of America. <laughs> it's just my feeling. Like, I feel like you, Floyd, can get to anyone in your country pretty quickly. I don't know if that, that's uh, an accurate feeling. Well, I was surprised that MPs actually do um, do do pick up calls if they feel they'll learn something new, or if, especially if you have a big following, they'll pick up a call. And I'm sure you've noticed that. So, uh, like you, we also spent some money on lobbying so we could actually reach people people in government to tell them about this economics report because we need this idea to spread. So people do respond, but you know, I'm sure you've encountered this too. Like at least uh, members of parliament or, or Congress people, they're, they're really more influencers than anything else. Like at the end of the day, it's the parties that have to run on something. Um, I guess in America, it's a bit different like because people can propose independent things. So we're doing whatever we can. Like another thing we're doing, again, from an election readiness perspective is is to show that we can pay for a basic income with, without costing uh, middle class voters. So so we can pay for it without costing people who make under 100K or even 150K and, we're, we're, we're sh and without avoiding the, the, the extreme left versus right uh, ideas that tend to um, uh, put people in boxes. So we're working on this right now. So we have to have this stuff ready. Um, in, in Canada, though, it's, it's interesting. It's, uh, I like to talk a bit about a couple, a couple years of learning I've had in basic income and how I've been able to um, untangle uh, UBI from guaranteed minimum incomes in my mind. Because um, it, it took me a while to figure that out, you know, having come from a technology background, been in love with your campaign. And uh, yeah, it was quite painful, actually, to, uh, to, come, to, to go through this learning journey. Well, hopefully you picked up some things from my campaign that uh, enabled you to speed up or avoid a pitfall or something along those lines. Uh, I, so I, I'm focused on trying to make these things happen in the US. Uh, and you talked about how people in the Democratic or Republican Party can propose something um, in, without their entire party being into it, um, which is accurate, but then that thing will not pass. <laughs> so so I, I've been... Uh, trying to chip away in various ways. And here in the United States, uh, here are the encouraging things. At this point, I feel like the argument has been won because literally hundreds of millions of Americans have received a cash relief check, uh, probably at least three of them, um, $1,200, $600, and $1,400. So the two main arguments that I always had to deal with, which were, number one, where do we get the money? And now you're like, well, it turns out we kind of have the money. Uh, and two, people aren't going to spend the money in positive ways. And it's like, well, like you got the money and what did you spend it on? <laughs> so, so I feel like most Americans now are like pretty down. And a majority of Americans uh, are pro um, universal basic income and cash relief right now. The thing that I'm looking at most intently is this, uh, child tax credit that got implemented in July and 36 million families, which probably means, you know, maybe twice that um, or three times that in terms of number of lives impacted, 
Um, so maybe 100 million lives impacted directly and then all of us get impacted indirectly. Uh, but 36 million families got a child tax credit of, let's call it 300 per child per month, which would add up to a lot. Like if you have two kids and you got 600 bucks, you would notice, you know what I mean? You get 600 bucks uh, every month for six months, you'd be like, wow. Um, but unfortunately, the child tax credit right now is scheduled to end at the end of this year, which is going to be an enormous deal for all of those families and for the country writ large. And uh, it's a no-brainer in my mind to extend the child tax credit um, in perpetuity, ideally. Um, so those are some of the things that we're focused on here. And when I say we, you know, like I, I have my role to play. Um, Humanity Forward has a lobbying presence on DC where they're talking about some of the things you're talking about, which are the policy impacts of cash relief to people on different points in the political and ideological spectrum. So Republicans talking about how it's great for the economy and entrepreneurship and business starts. Uh, and then for Democrats about all of the help it gives uh, people and families. Um, so that's front one in the, the fight is just talking to legislators. Um, so right now, what does that look like on your end uh, in Canada? Is there a lobbying effort? And it would be, it's very advanced to have a lobbying effort. So it wouldn't surprise me if you're just now starting to examine that. Um, so Canada already has a, uh, a child benefits. We've had it for, for several years and um, uh, in its permanence. And uh, it's a graduated system. So the less you have, the more you make. But it tapers off all the way up to families of $150,000 in income. And uh, interestingly, it, it used to be more like UBI um, when it was previously created by a conservative government. It was only a few hundred bucks a month uh, per family, even for those who didn't need it. And then uh, when the liberal government got elected uh, a ways back, they converted into a a, um, uh, a graduated what format where if if you are in poverty and you have kids, you can get up to six hundred dollars per child per month, and, uh, and that tapers down. And interestingly, that uh, it did grow the economy. It did make a big impact. In fact, I remember reading, hearing the uh, governor of the Bank of Canada showing off uh, in a podcast in, um, uh, in a couple of years afterwards it was implemented that the reason why Canada led the G7 in economic growth, I think it was in 2017, he said is because of the Canada Child Benefit. Like literally said is because of that. And, uh, and also recently, uh, Canada is one of the few countries where the Gini coefficient, the, the measures of inequality, have been actually improving and uh, people who've studied it say that the overwhelming reason uh, there's many reasons but the main reason is the canada child benefit so it, it really works for both both helping people and growing the economy and uh, so one of the first things we did actually was to uh, fund uh, uh, some research into it that, that showed an independent researcher the canadian center of economics analysis showed that every dollar invested in the in the ccb creates two dollars of gdp or rather contributes two dollars of gdp some economists speak which is, is really exciting. So it, it works. It's good for everyone. So you all already have that, which uh, I think a lot of Americans knew. But now hearing it, you're like, wow. Even I was like, I knew that. But I'm like, wow. Like uh, Canada is ahead of the U.S. In, in many respects. So because you already have that, then you can jump to, to more robust forms of basic income. Yeah, let's talk about that. So I have this theory because like, I've been doing this for two years, talking to MPs. Um, we did some lobbying, but again, because it's a party system, I'm starting to think that there's limited success. Uh, again, b b because basic income requires an election mandate, that's my presumption. I don't think any government could do it without an election mandate because it is a dramatic change in 
in, 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 in tax policy. It's, it's not something you just do, even in a crisis, apparently, because look, we just had one. They did something like basic income, but it was temporary. And uh, we can get into that. Um, but it needs an election. So at the end of the day, it's, it's really the parties. They have to believe they can win. And Canada, like the US, there's majority support. There's two thirds support for basic income, but only one third support are people who said they'd pay for it. So I think that's true everywhere. That, 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 that's why um, we've been focusing on um, narratives and talking points to link basic income to middle class prosperity, because it's, it's middle class voters whose minds you have to change. And in fact, we've been working on funding plans to show that they won't even have to pay for it. Uh, we can pay for basic income through taxes on the financial sector, uh, taxes on passive wealth accumulation, that, that won't even hurt economic investment. So that's been a focus of ours very recently. So we can show that we can have this while actually making the economy better, definancializing it a little bit, putting more money in the real economy, which again would, would add $80 billion to GDP. But, but back to the, your, your original question, yes, Canada is further ahead. There are a lot of members of parliament that are for it. And they're all for a guaranteed minimum income. They, they want the most incremental change to, to reduce poverty. They're, 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 and I felt like an alien sometimes talking to, to them about a UBI which is a much more expensive program on the headline when they just want to do the, the, the smallest thing possible to reduce poverty by 50% or more, and it would cost four times less. And like the, the only thing I could tell them about UBI is that, well, if you do this, it'll push the net payers above the middle class into higher deciles. And, and I just, I kind of felt weird. And after a while, I, I started to kind of shift my views on uh, the whole, you know, income testing versus uh, UBI. And, um, it took me to a different place. I, you know, the, the, the experts in the industry say it's not means testing, it's income testing. It's a simple income test on a tax return. It's not like means testing like welfare and it's cheaper. So, you know, you could have a 50% reduction in poverty if Canada implements a guaranteed minimum income like what was tried in Ontario during the canceled pilot of $17,000 a year. So a higher, minimum, a higher benefit amount uh, and it would cost eight times less than if you gave everyone $1,000 a month in terms of the gross costs. So, um, uh, heresy, I say Floyd, no, I'm kidding. Um, I mean, people ask me all the time, um, Hey, what yeah. about a negative income tax? Uh, that, and, and then I, which is an idea where essentially if you make below a certain amount, they true you up to that amount. And I hear that and I say, I would love, love a neg negative income tax. Like that would be great. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, so I, I'm not dogmatic about the version. I think a guaranteed minimum income is great, I think, which is essentially identical to a negative income tax. <laughs> you you yeah. said it at a particular level. Uh, I think that arguing for universal basic income um, is more compelling and direct um, and uh, avoid some of the administrative stuff, um, which is why I made the argument. Um, and in America, the way the numbers work out, like the, the people who are doing great, unfortunately, are vastly outnumbered by the people who are not doing that great. <laughs> and so yeah. it's like, well, if you gave yeah. some of them more money, you know, say la vie. Um, but but I, I so it sounds like uh, policymakers are more wedded to poverty reduction plans. Um, and so uh, you've shifted in that direction in Canada. Is that right? The OGs in the movement, as I like to call them, the original gangsters who have been doing this for like decades, they're all retired former civil service workers, uh, people, retired senators, people who are in government, and they understand the realities of, of government politics. And uh, so they, they, they want to reduce poverty, replace the, the, improve the social welfare system with something that's not means tested and has more dignity. So they just want to not ruffle things too much and well, I'll have the greatest impact on people. So uh, I started to, to feel a bit... Um, uh, awkward talking about technology and give everyone a share and this and that. And, and, and it, it led me to a, um, 
Yeah, and actually along the way, it's interesting to mention, I guess for the American audience too, like uh, th there is also a, a version of UBI that I'm sure would work in the US too, that a friend of mine is a tax lawyer uh, and a number of CFOs from high, high level uh, companies I know are, are in favor of is give everyone $2,000 a month and obliterate the tax code and obliterate the, all other income support programs, like make it really simple, like a 50% flat tax on for every dollar over $2,000 a month. And, th and that's it. You have no, the tax code becomes like one page and, and you're done. And like, that sounds really cool and smart, but, but when do smart things get actually work in politics? It's a, it, it's such a huge, huge um, cost um, or change that it's hard to imagine someone running on that and winning. One of the frustrations people have in the U.S. Uh, is the the uh, maze of regulations. Like that, I think the number is that Americans spend nine billion hours uh, figuring out our taxes collectively. Uh, like it's yeah. insane. Uh, and Annie Lowry called it the time tax. Uh, I called it the dignity tax. <laughs> Where there are all of these things in uh, the labyrinthine code. Um, and everyone's attracted to simplifying it. The problem is that there are just powerful interest groups that have built up around every complication. And you're looking at uh, changes that would reduce their revenue uh, in many cases by hundreds of millions. And, and the most straightforward example of this is something that I, I find infuriating. Uh, but into it, the makers of TurboTax have assiduously lobbied to make sure that you can't automatically have your taxes filed because they make hundreds of millions from the complexity. Uh, so there are going to be defenders of complexity. Uh, it's awful. In America, it's uh, rampant. Uh, they, and someone called it the kludgeocracy, where it's like, like people are profiting from uh, the clogged pipes. And, and it's one of the legitimate frustrations that drive a lot of Americans up a wall where uh, if you heard Trump's drain the swamp stuff, like a, a lot of people are sympathetic to it because they feel like there are these soulless bureaucracies uh, that govern uh, how much money you get or whether you're truly disabled. Uh, and when you talk to Canadian government officials about the desire to reduce poverty, that's a frustration that a lot of people here have is that if you were to go to legislators or policymakers and say, hey, let's reduce poverty, uh, then... Uh, there are a lot of people in power that don't really want to reduce poverty <laughs> or, yeah. or, or they want to make it very, very difficult for someone to get resources. Uh, and there have been a number of um, Republican politicians who have essentially gone on the record saying, like, we have to make the process difficult and painful enough so that a lot of people just get fed up and give up and, and don't get through. Like, you have to make it this massive uh challenge to get resources um uh, it's really uh, the worst of all worlds in many respects uh, i i think and th this should be something that americans of every political stripe can get behind which is trying to clean up the bureaucracy trying to clean up the rules trying to make it so that if you're entitled to certain benefits uh they don't make you jump through endless hoops yeah absolutely um actually the government in canada announced that they're going to do automatic tax filing like they have in the u.s and I think, I think the government is actually sympathetic. I, I think it's not the right time for them, for their political calculations. So if you have automatic tax filing, 
more people will start to get the existing income supports they never knew they had because everything's income tested. And uh, so that, that's kind of a first step in that direction. But um, yeah, I mean, Canada, the, the, the governing party right now, I talked to a lot of their MPs. There's a huge caucus of like at least like 30 of their MPs that are for basic income. It was the number one voted issue at the party platform, which means nothing about the actual party running on it. It just shows that the party uh, people themselves uh, want it. And um, and oddly enough, like the, the other parties, there's no official stance, even like the far, far further left leading party, NDP, has no official stance on, on basic income. Some of their MPs are, are for it, introduced motions in the House. Um, and uh, how many and, MPs but, are there in total? Uh, 335. <laughs> wow, such a familiar sounding number. <laughs> so there yeah. so there are 30 uh, MPs who are for basic income. And are they all in one party? Or are they spread out? Um, you know, there's probably a lot more than that. There's, just, there's at least 30 that showed up uh, uh, on a call that we organized to hear about the economics analysis report that will grow the economy. And uh, that, that was pretty cool. The first time in my life I ever was able to affect something like that to happen. I was very proud of that. Um, uh, but the party itself, though, is, is it was one of the top resolutions, I think number two or three, at the recent convention. So it's, it's, the party wants it. It's the, it's the, the government, the, the actual leaders that I think haven't run an election on it yet. And it seems like they may not because everything they're saying now is they want to introduce childcare, uh, affordable childcare, so more women go, and, and men and people can go back to work. Um, I mean, I think basic income would be as important or even more important than that, frankly. Uh, but but yeah, in this country, like there is a lot of support among MPs in, in all parties, including the Conservative Party, which is why I think the discussion has moved more towards an income guarantee versus a UBI, much like now, you know, Elon Omar did that that um, policy recently in the US, that that, that bill um, seems to go in that direction. But but it's it's led me to to have a bit of a moral crisis because you know, I, I'm like with you that we need to find a way to make technology benefit everyone. So we have a sense of ownership in our economy. And, and it, it occurred to me that that a, a true UBI cannot be separated from its funding source. The funding source itself has to have some moral basis for why we, we believe we deserve an equal right to it. Because otherwise, I, I don't see how I see it failing a moral test if if you're basically saying tax working people to pay for other people who who work less. So it, that, that put me down a whole learning journey and reading the work of Guy Standing and Carl Weiderquist and, and all the way back to uh, Thomas Paine to understand the real roots of, of UBI, which is, is not basic income. It's a social dividend. It's, it's everyone getting a share of something that they, that they should be owning. And, and that got me really excited because I can see how uh, uh, what I'm starting to call common wealth dividends mm -hmm. can work with a guaranteed minimum income together, where, where as Martin Luther King who is for a guaranteed minimum income, he encouraged his followers that we need to do more than just give money to people who need it. We should question the economic system that creates need in the first place. And, and to me, uh, I've started to think about this concept of, of, of creating common wealth, literally wealth we own in common, like, like, like sovereign wealth funds, like they have in Norway and Alaska, where people feel that they, they own the oil and they're sharing the dividends. So, so I, I'm starting to think that there's maybe actually two movements here that, that need to, to happen separately and not be confused with each other. One is the anti-poverty movement that's for an income guarantee. And the other one is a movement that I'm calling uh, Commonwealth Dividends to create common wealth that can actually, is how we could get to Star Trek the next generation as an economic system. And, and I have a lot more to say about that um, on the basis of some of the predictions of John Maynard Keynes, uh, if you're interested. <laughs> well, uh, so I'm attracted to anything that um, enables dividends for people based upon some 
massive common resource. So the, the common resources I've seen suggested most often are land, uh, energy, carbon, data. Uh, and when I was running for president or considering my run for president, I thought about each of them uh, and I wanted to start at the end where I just cut straight to a thousand bucks a month for everyone. Uh, because if I said, hey, you're going to get some tiny percentage of uh, this carbon tax or, or something like that. And then someone's asking, oh, how much is that? And then you're like, well, it depends. <laughs> like, like, I didn't, like, I did, I, like part of it was that I just thought that uh, it would be very difficult uh, to, to make the case. But the other problem I had was that when I ran the numbers, most of the time, the dividend in question uh, was not that large based upon current numbers. And some of them could become quite large. Uh, it, it's one reason why I ended up landing on a value added tax was because I was confident as you are that eventually AI and technology are gonna be doing much more of the work. Uh, our current income tax system, certainly in the US is gonna miss that. Canada has a VAT, right? It, it has a value added tax, which has been reduced. It, it became a bit of a political ping pong which is, uh, is unfortunate because it, it is a tax favored by economists that actually can, uh, is non-distortionary and can, can, can help the economy. So it's currently at 5%, which combined with the various provincial level of taxes uh, puts Canada's overall consumption taxes at uh, less than half of the European averages. Well, still 5% is 5% higher than the US and a 5% value added tax in the US would be enormous. Like my entire suggestion was 10% and that would have been enough to fund just about anything you need uh, because our economy is so massive. <laughs> it could, yeah, it could I absolutely agree with you that um, I think given that you're running for office, you have to keep it simple. And in a sense, a VAT tax is a shortcut to achieve some of the benefits that actually taxing uh, what is called economic rents, which we can get into, would achieve indirectly. So I think it's, it's, a, it's a simple policy would have had the biggest impact which again, in my mind, is coming back to this whole thing that that UBI, that UBI is is both trying to be an anti-poverty program, but also the the origins of it is more of a social justice thing about getting your share of something we own together. And those two things are actually not compatible. Uh, to, I mean, they are somewhat. If you had a share of what you should rightfully own, maybe there'd be no poverty. Uh, but it, it's a whole different narrative and entry point. And I'm not running for anything, so I've been thinking about building a movement around. Uh, commonwealth and commonwealth dividends, which is where we can affect the, the bigger changes that society needs to achieve ecological and sustainability, less inequality, because an income guarantee will only go so far as opposed to a, a fundamental fix that can actually uh, save the planet and give us a sense of shared ownership and shared shared outcomes. And um, so yeah, what, what I, think well, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm into it. So my question is, how do you yeah. define the commonwealth from which the dividends would flow. Uh, because again, I tried to figure out what this could look like and I, I came up short. Yeah, do you mind if we take a, a bit of a roundabout way to get there? <laughs> yeah, sure thing. Okay, so we, we both talk about Star Trek. You talked about it, I thought that was so cool. Um, you, you had that slide in your talk about Star Trek versus Mad Max. <laughs> and Yeah, um, which one are we heading towards right now? I think we all know, <laughs> unfortunately actually, for all of us. I think it's more like Star <laughs> Trek versus Star Wars. Because my read on technology is that it's, it's not going to be no one having jobs. It's going to be what we have more of now, more low-income jobs and more poverty-level jobs. 
because as a business owner, there's always going to be unlimited number of people I could hire if you can hire them for almost nothing. But there's a fundamental, almost like an injustice in that if people can't afford to live. So, so it's um, the future we're seeing from technology. What we're seeing is actually low income work predominantly, uh, polarization of outcomes. And that's the biggest threat to democracy is losing the middle class, having polarization of, of wages and jobs, which is, has been happening for decades. And um, so I think all this, frankly, was foreseen by one of the world's greatest economists named John Maynard Keynes. And he wrote an essay in uh, 1930. Actually, he spent three years noodling on it, tweaking every word. It was called Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. We are Keynes's grandchildren. And this essay is incredible. It, is, it describes a beautiful world that is, is fundamentally how we get to a Star Trek world. And I've really unpacked this essay to figure out what, what he was saying and all the analysis of it. And, and I think it points to this idea of creating commonwealth. Um, so let's describe this world, <laughs> if you'll indulge me. Um, he talked about a world where the economic problem has been solved. He defines the economic problem as a struggle for subsistence. Not, not, not great wealth, not like Saudi Arabia level wealth, but just like literally no one is struggling just to survive. As a, and he was very careful to distinguish this from, from struggling for status. People might still want to keep up with the Joneses, want to drive a Tesla. Uh, and there's obviously forms of status that are far better than, than just money status, like, like contribution, scientific discovery, having the best arts, the, making the best cocktail. There'll always be struggles of some sort that'll put us to work, uh, but it doesn't have to be struggling to survive. He said we would have solved that problem by 2030 uh, and, or at least know how we're going to get there, there'll be a path in sight. He said that most people won't, there'll be so much abundance that people will want to work uh, 15 hours a week just to keep themselves feeling useful. So the implication in that is that people won't have to work, uh, although commentators have latched on to that number and said that Keynes predicted the 15-hour work week. No, he said that people would want to work. And in fact, that if they're not working on things to survive, they'd be working on things to help others. So for instance... Uh, it doesn't mean that in a world with a, a generous CBI, there'll be no more people working at Starbucks. Like you might love being a barista because you love people and because it pays you better post DBI, you negotiated a better salary. You might love being a bartender because you love people and, and you get more money for every hour after 11 PM because that's kind of hazardous to be up so late all the time. Um, it, you might want to work for Elon Musk because you believe in his mission to get us to Mars. Like that's the world that he was describing is people working out of a sense of, of purpose, not out of, out of need. So, you know, I, I, it, he talked a lot about this concept of enjoying life now, not living and sacrificing for a better future. So not like working your ass off now to retire later. No, you, you, effectively, we've, we've built all this abundance. We're retired now, but we want to work because we have energy. That's what I'm doing. I did well in my business, and I'm working on UBI works because this is what the world needs, and it, and it brings me a lot of joy to work on these things. Um, so he said it, that we would have solved this. So, you know, I asked the, the listeners if this was possible, wouldn't this be our responsibility to pursue this? If this is really possible, we should, we should fight for this. This is far more than, than a yes. guaranteed basic income. And by the way, this is the first time in public I'm ever speaking about these things. I've been very shy about it. But, but Andrew, I want to honor you because you've been such an inspiration to me. So I want to say these things in public and use this as, as the launch pad and, uh, and tell you how we might get to Keynes's vision because it's basic income is the beginning. And I think, I think Commonwealth is, is going to be part of the journey to get there overall. Um, 
So the economic problem has been solved. A number of um, Nobel Prize winning economists have said his predictions for growth have happened. Actually, we even understated by an order of magnitude. So the, the amount of productivity growth Keynes said we would need to solve the problem has been happen, happening. But these naysayers, like, but, but then everyone else looked at it and said, well, Obviously, it hasn't. He was wrong because look, we're still working longer than before. And, I mean, we and clearly have the wealth to be able to to do what he said. I mean, if you just run the numbers, uh, yeah. we, we can provide for every person certainly uh, in the developed world easily, and the developing world if you uh, you know adopt like the appropriate. Um, cost uh, changes in other parts of the world, like we, we could provide for everyone on the planet. We absolutely could. And even the word provide, though, is kind of suggesting it's charity. And, and that's actually where I think uh, Commonwealth resolves that because it's not charity. It's, it's co-ownership of something that makes us money. And that's much simpler and it's more pride in that. So, so the, the economic problem, uh, it, it's in reach. It's, the productivity is there. And so I think what Keynes was hinting at in his essay, because economists are very careful, like anyone's listened to a, a central bank try and forecast uh, interest rates knows they're going to be very careful of what they say. They might hint at things that they want, but they'll never say it clearly because they could get in trouble. They could lose their job. They could be mocked in their career. It's, a, it's always been this way where, where economists speak in riddles. So I think the, much of his essay is actually describing not the economic problem that would be resolved, but the political problem that would need to be resolved. This is fundamentally a political problem, not an economic one. And he left a lot of clues in his essay to suggest what the actual solution is. Um, he mentioned that we would, we would be able to discard, not that we would, we'd be able to discard all kinds of social customs and economic practices affecting the distribution of wealth and the economic rewards and penalties, the incentives that the system operates in that we previously justified because they grow the economy. But if we already reach this level of abundance, when economic growth is not being paraded as like the sole thing that will make your life better because it will make you jobs and make you higher at pay, which it's not, it's been disconnected from wage growth for a long time, then something's got to give politically. So I think he was inviting us to create a movement. And he literally said the word nervous breakdown. He implied that individually or, or societally, it would be like a nervous breakdown we'd have to go through to let go of these customs and ideas that are holding us back. A nervous breakdown. Here's an example. If I tell you, you should pay for someone else not to work, you might have a nervous breakdown, but, or, or that people don't need to work anymore, that we can't even conceive of this. But, but no one is actually saying that someone should pay for someone else not to work. That's actually not, not the case at all. You know, he, he just, but, but even conceiving of a society where not everyone has to work, it even makes me nervous thinking about it. She's like, what are people going to do? Like, what's going to happen? Like, it's, there is a nervous breakdown we have to go through. And I believe that Keynes also implied that technological unemployment might be the trigger for it. He actually opened up the essay mentioning technological unemployment early on and then doesn't mention it again, uh, just mentions these other things that I, that I had said. And he defines it as labor-saving technology uh, that's adopted faster than we can find new uses for labor. Um, and that we will struggle with how to use this freedom from economic need, that technology uh, and compound interest, so growth, economic growth has brought us. But as you well know, it happened to my family in the 2000s, those manufacturing workers, the technology frees us from time, but it also frees us from income. So what's the solution? It was in yeah. Keynes' essay. He said, those who have an independent, an independent income, but no associations, duties, or ties to. 
And none of the commentators who have evaluated the essay picked up on that point because he kind of hit it in a description of, of what wealthy people have. And he said wealthy people are the first people to get there. He didn't say, like, we can be like them. He said, no, the first people to get to the promised land are the wealthy of his time, and they have independent income with no associations or duties or ties. And he, he, the essay lays the case that all of us will have that soon. So to me, this, this again comes to wealth, co-owning some form of wealth. Um, and as you know, wealthy people, they don't make money from income. They make money from assets. Assets make money for them. Um, so I think that was the hint he was giving us is that an independent income is basically like a basic income, but, but not only the basic income, some form of, of co-owned wealth that pays us a dividend is how we get to Star Trek The Next Generation. I love the vision. Um, I struggled with what that looks like. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, and I, I do think there are steps to be taken. Um, basic income to me strikes me as like a, an enormous step in this direction. And right now, particularly in, in this era where uh, you're seeing some flexibility, let's say, in terms of um, what governments can do. Uh, in so far as um, if you have a global reserve currency, you know, you, you still can uh, make big moves. Um, so uh, I think that the U.S. is in a very powerful position to be able to do this. Um, and and uh, I'm curious what your examination of Keynes's essay leads you to think are the steps that you want to work on in Canada with UBI Works. If you look at Keynes' Other parts of Keynes's life, things that he had said that would be, you know, probably obviously he had this vision. He was against something called um, rentier capitalism. He, he said at the very end of his theory of general um, everything, whatever, that we need to take the rentier aspect out of capitalism. A capitalism isn't the problem. It's economic rents uh, are the problem. And economic rents is a form of profit uh, that Joseph Stiglitz, the, another Nobel Prize winning economist, says is, is profit we make without working for it. Uh, without adding any value in return. Um, there's a growing consciousness around uh, rentier capitalism, which Guy Standing, the foremost world expert on basic income, talks a lot about. Um, and, and, and Keynes, in his end of, uh, at the end of his general theory, he talked about the euthanasia of the rentier. He called it the functionless investor. The investor makes money and doesn't work for it. And that's a lot of commentators, um, a lot of experts are saying that it's actually this aspect of of capitalism where we're extracting rents that mainly go to the, the top 1% or uh, that is actually slowing down uh, prosperity for everyone and is, is extractive as opposed to inclusive. So um, so the, the plan is, and this is the beginning, it's the first time ever saying this in public, is to try and create a movement around citizen rent, rent seeking. Let's create common wealth that, that captures these rents uh, into a commonwealth sovereign wealth fund of sorts that can invest it, this money in stocks and bonds and create wealth that everyone owns that can get a dividend from. And, and that's where I think that uh, basic income won't get us to Keynes' vision because it's seen as an anti-poverty program through the lens of efficiency, minimal tax increase, usual left versus right dichotomy. Uh, but, you know, but, but Commonwealth will get us there much like it did in, in Alaska. So in Alaska, the, the excess profit from oil extraction is by definition economic rent. 
uh, in Norway, they take out even more. Norway collects 80% of the, of the profits from rent extraction and puts it into their sovereign wealth fund. And if they chose to, to pay people a dividend from that fund, everyone in Norway could get $10,000 a year right now, uh, which is incredible. But they're using it to pay for public services instead, which I'd argue is a form of tax break for the wealthy. Because if they, if they funded those public services through normal income taxes, the wealthier would be paying more. If they did what Alaska did instead and gave everyone a dividend, people would be more equal, more bottom-up prosperity. And as we know, Alaska has the, the most equal um, uh, state in the U.S. Um, so, you know, what, what, what people do with their, their income from their wealth or the oil dividend is no one else's business. No one goes into saying, hey, we're giving dividends to lazy people because we own the oil together. Um, yeah, the, this is an argument I was making with data as the new oil. Uh, and what yeah. I referenced before, energy, like oil was the main uh, energy form that people talk about divvying up. Uh, there's also a movement around decentralized organizations where if you can imagine an Uber where every Uber driver is an Uber owner, like in a node, as opposed to having the, these uh, shareholders above them. Uh, and, and so there are a lot of folks who uh, believe that this is the direction we have to go. Certainly our current system is not very geared toward this uh and the the struggle is that um the folks that would benefit most from this are right now excluded from uh being able to create some of these kinds of organizations and that that is changing as you can tell like I, i'm not i'm hesitant where i i still think that this has to happen politically uh and then if it happens politically then all things become possible um, but I'm all for uh, entrepreneurial independent approaches towards cooperative wealth building absolutely. and ownership. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, 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 I have a lot of debates with people in the crypto space. I own some crypto and uh, they keep saying this is the be all end all solution to everything. And I keep telling them like, you know, the financial sector is just one monopoly of many. Like, yes, we, we need it. It'll take the rents out of the system. Like if effectively, if you're using financial services, uh, on uh, on various blockchains, you're, you, there's much less rent being collected. Rent, by definition, is the excess profit above and beyond what's needed to produce those services that you're using. So you can have an account with less fees. You can transfer things with less intermediaries. It takes the middleman out. So so any decentralized um, endeavor or or private sector endeavor that removes uh, more of this rent out of the system means that they're providing services, better services for lower cost. Because in a in perfect in an environment of perfect competition, there'd be no rent because the competitors would bring prices down so low that, that the profits would just be what are required to provide you this good and service. And, and that's where capitalism wins. Capitalism wins as a way to incentivize, you know, gazillions and gazillions of independent people to provide solutions to your problem uh, for the lowest possible price. But capitalism fails when, when economic rents start being extracted because of monopoly power that's given by various authorities or companies get so big that they can just start extracting, raising prices and extracting more, more, more rent. So, so these various examples of rent well, you mentioned. Well, certainly, certainly the rent seeking yeah. in America is sky high, where people talk about yeah. it as if there there are fair markets and competition. And in most of these markets, there really uh, has been uh, monopoly or near monopoly implemented. Like anyone who thinks that Amazon versus the neighborhood retailer is like genuine competition. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like Amazon's like, Hey, worth a trillion dollars. Don't even need to make money in any given period. And then, then, then you have like the local store being like, Oh, you know, I mean, you know, it, it's so there, there's a lot of, 
um, a lot of rent seeking, a lot of excesses in the American system, and uh, people uh, are still operating as if it was, you know, 1940s or 50s where the, the market is functioning closer to what they imagine it. it. It's very dispiriting how behind reality most people are, uh, the way they think about this. So two things, one, rent seeking, yes, and rent seeking is everywhere in the US, and if you were to get rid of it, then uh, things would be very different and better. Um, but like most of the ways that a lot of the wealthy individuals and institutions are making money are essentially rent seeking at this point. <laughs> like if you're like like that's the entire franchise. Um, yeah. So so if you were to get rid of it, it would be extraordinarily disruptive. Um, not that no, I'm not saying that's necessarily the worst thing in the world. But I'm just pointing out that that's the case. Um, the second thing is that when you talk to your friends in the cryptocurrency space, I have friends, uh, maybe not, you know, the, the same friends or as many friends. Uh, but yeah, they're, they're all like, look, like, stop messing around with this other stuff. Like, you know, uh, just uh, like digital currencies, bing, bang, the end. <laughs> like, like, your mouth. we just like skip right to it. Um, and I love that uh, attitude and energy. Um, and I would love to see it happen. And, and the blockchain is what will enable some of these decentralized organizations uh, that I was referring to before. So I, I'm excited about the possibilities. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I actually had to unfriend someone who was just badgering me after I did a Facebook post about rent seeking. He's like, dude, it's all about crypto fiat, blah, blah, take down the government. I'm like, dude, do you understand that finance is not the only monopoly, right? Like we can take out that monopoly, great. Maybe slightly better off, but it's not going to change the incentive to extract rents out of, out of, at the cost of environmental destruction or the cost of labor exploitation. There's tons of, of rent seeking that can still hurt beyond money creation. And uh, there's a bigger picture here. You know, rent is much more than just, just like the banking system. Well, I love where you've gone, Floyd. Um, you're a beautiful human being and a brilliant thinker. Uh, so if someone wants to help you further your vision in Canada, UBI Works is now taking donations. People can follow you on various social media. But what, what would you ask people to do? How do they stay involved and help you? Well, right now, I mean, I, I, I'm kind of seeing two paths forward. One is we're going to do everything we can to promote a guaranteed minimum income now because it, it is the quickest way to relieve a lot of suffering and to improve our economy and also up, emancipate millions of people to think more long term. And if they can think more long term, things like like taking on the rents, uh, creating a UBI from co-ownership, sovereign wealth funds that can actually solve the bigger issues that create inequality in the first place we'll actually have a chance. So I, I kind of see us running two different tracks. One is the, the basic income track and the other is the Commonwealth track, which will be about educating and creating awareness of rents and also the, some of the, the harmful aspects of, of rents. So, you know, for example, like climate change um, and the crazy property market we have in Canada right now, where like housing prices are going insane. And part of that is because of land rents and, and sort of perverse incentives uh, that are baked into the system that I think, um, uh, a UBI as a, as a funding, uh, as a place where the money goes, if we pay a land tax, for instance, could be a compromise that people would accept as opposed to just more money going to the government if that means a more stable housing market. So I, I'm trying to think of like each of these categories of rent, what can we do to, to create movements around them? That could be all be funneled into this one idea of like give everyone a UBI so we all get a share of the rents and we can all benefit together and, and create a sustainable future. But the thing you can do right now it's just sign up on UBI Works, follow us on all the channels, uh, engage in all the activism we ask you to, and uh, 
And yeah, you can donate or whatever. But uh, <laughs> we're, I'm going to be at this for a while. You know, when I started EBI Works, I had a, an intention to do it for four years. And there's two years left in that mandate and, uh, and including my, the, the funding of it. Uh, so we hope to get more, more fundraisers just in case uh, we don't uh, close the basic income in the next two years. And then I want to probably focus on Commonwealth maybe for the next 10 years, because I think that is how the bigger picture, how we get to Keynes's vision to for a better world. It's a race, people. Canada versus the United States. Floyd <laughs> versus me. Who's gonna win? I'd take either of us getting there because if one of us gets there, then the uh, you know if Canada gets there, and the U.S. will look up and be like, "What?" <laughs> and certainly, if the U.S. gets there, then Canada would be like, "I cannot believe the U.S. beat us to it." So let's freaking push both countries forward as quickly as possible, and the rest of the world. Floyd, thank you so much, my friend. Um, Thank you. It's so great to spend this time with you and rooting for you, supporting you every step of the way. Thank you so much. <laughs>